Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called Curiosity Daily, and it's hosted by Cody Goff and Ashley Hamer. And every day, Cody and Ashley bring you about 10 minutes of smart audio. Help you keep up with the latest in science and technology and research-based life hacks and things such as this. I think you'll be interested in it. Sometimes they interview authors. And just to give you a taste of what you're going to find on Curiosity Daily, Cody and Ashley sent me the full version of a author interview they did rather than the edited one that they published. Anyway, I think you'll enjoy it. And I think you'll enjoy Curiosity Daily. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. You can find it just about everywhere. So a couple of days ago, Bill Gates recommended my book in the Wall Street Journal. And nice. so the publisher went crazy, calls me up at night. Who and, hasn't recommended your book? You've got Daniel Kahneman <laughs> in the... Uh. Yeah. Right. So this is what was funny. So I didn't even realize, you know, that's a really big deal in publishing. So I'm like, oh, hey, I show my wife. And then the editor calls me up at like 8.30 at night. Did you see this? Like Bill Gates, like, this is awesome. And I hadn't heard from him in like three months. I'm like, I guess this is important, kind of big deal. He's calling me and I, and then the next morning, I look at my Amazon web page, and they, which they the publisher controls, right? And so they, the first line is now recommended by Bill Gates, Daniel Kahneman, and Tim Ferriss. And I'm wow. like, I just totally cracked up because, like, Tim and I were like buddies hanging out as single guys in Manhattan 10, 11 years ago. And I'm like, man, this guy has arrived. Yeah. And the wealthiest <laughs> man on the planet. And the, the, one of the most famous Nobel laureates in the world, and him are the three things the publisher. I'm like, wow, uh, you know that. You've really got like three it. walks of life there. It's and like now he's an adjective. Everybody. Oh That's my great. god! Like this guy is Tim has really arrived. That's so hilarious. <laughs> I love it. Well, so have you. This is like a best-selling book. I mean, <clears> it's it's. I, every, like I said, I, everyone has recommended it. It's, really? It's, yeah. It it's, sounds it's, like it. It is. It is funny to have Nobel. You know, every now and then when someone, like, criticizes, like, um, it's like, oh, yeah, there's, you know, it's just based on a superficial analogy or something like, really, why would three Nobel laureates <laughs> recommend a superficial analogy? Maybe there's a little, then, I, then you remember in writing, just, like, just ignore everything and just focus on, focus on the writing. Let's start with the 10,000-foot overview. So, the name of the book is Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform industries. Let's talk about what a loon shot is to kind of um, set up this conversation. Why'd you call it loon shots? Where'd that come from? Everybody knows what a moonshot is. A moonshot's a big goal, an exciting destination. But the big ideas, when you really look back, the ones that change the course of science or business or history rarely arrive with blaring trumpets and red carpets dazzling everybody with their brilliance. They're usually dismissed for years or decades, their champions written off as crazy. And there wasn't a good word in the English language for that, so I made one up, called it moonshots. But, you know, as an example of that, if you think back, the word moonshots actually comes back from when John F. Kennedy in 1961 first declared to Congress, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And everybody applauded him. But most people don't remember that the 
idea that got us there was first suggested by a man named Robert Goddard 40 years earlier. In other words, liquid-fueled jet propulsion, rockets. When Goddard suggested that idea in the 1920s, he was widely ridiculed. He was laughed at, and people said, you're nuts. The New York Times actually wrote an editorial saying, this man Goddard with his quote, quote-unquote chair, as if, by the way, that's like some crazy thing to have a chair at a university, with his chair at physics at Clark University, doesn't understand the basic laws of physics that we teach our children in high school every day, namely that Newton's laws of action and reaction mean rocket flight in space is impossible. There's nothing to push against. And he was just sort of ridiculed and not taken seriously. Fourteen years after his death, in July 1969, one day after the successful Apollo 11 rocket launch to the moon, the New York Times issued a retraction. Apparently, rocket flight does not violate 17th century physics and, quote, the Times regrets the error. So, why is that important? Why is that sort of interesting to understand? Well, loon shots, a moonshot is a destination. Nurturing the loon shots is how we get there. And that's really important to remember because although Goddard was dismissed in the U.S., he was taken seriously in Nazi Germany. So German scientists used his ideas to build the first jet aircraft, to which the Allies had no answer, flew 100 miles an hour faster than any Allied plane. The German scientists built the first long-range missiles, the V-1 bomber, then the V-2 bomber, and that rained terror on London and Europe. And again, the Allies had no answer. Fortunately, we got lucky that the war ended before the Germans could use those weapons. But the moral of that story is that declaring moonshots and big goals is important, but nurturing moonshots is even more so. And you use a lot of physics analogies from your physics background to kind of just describe, uh, you make a comparison between basically the way that like water changes phases into ice, and you use that analogy to kind of talk about these ideas, right? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure, and it really gets to an interesting, and in some ways, a question that's puzzled people and thinking about teams and companies and groups and organizations and nurturing innovation for almost 200 years. And that's the question of why do good teams kill great ideas? Why do good teams kill great ideas? And that seems like a really strange thing. If you have a bunch of people and they're all excited about a project or an idea and you put them together, why would they kill that idea when they come together? But that's exactly what happens. And that's what companies are so afraid of. And that's what managers and leaders, and that's what frustrates people who are developing ideas where individually people are excited. So why do good teams kill great ideas? So to answer that question in a way that's never been done before, I want you to imagine a glass of water. Imagine a glass of water, and I stick my finger in. As I swirl it around, the molecules just slosh around my finger. But when I lower the temperature, as the temperature crosses 32 Fahrenheit, all of a sudden, the behavior of those molecules completely changes. The water freezes. It goes totally rigid. I can't stick my finger in anymore. Why? The molecules inside are exactly the same. So how did they know to suddenly change behavior? There's no CEO molecule with a bullhorn saying, oh, it's 33 Fahrenheit, everybody slosh around. No, wait, it's 31, everybody line up and be, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute, it's 33, everybody slosh. They just do it. And so that answer of why they do it helps us understand why groups act in such strange ways. Because there are phase transitions. In science, that's called a phase transition. And this is actually much more than an analogy. And what I do in Loonshots is show you how you create 
an underlying theorem. I sort of hid that in the back with the equations, but you can actually start from first principles and show that the same principles that happen in a glass of water, which is two competing forces that helps explain that transition, happens whenever you organize people into a group, you create these two competing forces. So ultimately, the reason that groups change behavior, they change from embracing wild new ideas to rigidly rejecting them, is the same reason that a glass of water will change from being molecules sloshing around to being totally rigid, even though nobody says anything. And what it tells you, it gives you a completely different way to think about the behavior of groups and teams and companies because it tells you that no amount of a manager sitting on the top and telling people, oh, everybody, let's just sing Kumbaya and hold hands and watch movies about being innovative or whatever is going to make any difference. Just like no amount of someone yelling at a block of ice, hey, molecules, why don't you just loosen up a little bit, is going to melt that block of ice. But a small change in temperature can get that job done. Small change in temperature can melt steel. So that's what makes this stuff so interesting, is once you understand what are those two forces, the tension of those two forces, just like in a glass of water, you have this tension between two forces, and when you organize people into a group, you create these two forces. Once you understand those forces and you understand that transition, you can begin to manage it. For example, when it snows at night, what do you sprinkle on your sidewalk? Salt. Salt. Very good. By the way, I was giving this talk one time in a in an audience in Southern California, and I, to me that's a rhetorical question because I come from New England. And it was like 150 people, and it was just like crickets. And I, it just really threw me off. I said, like, wait, is the microphone not working? Like, what's going on here? Just like but polite smiles, and everybody just like waiting, and there's this long pause as I'm waiting for anybody to say salt. And it's like, oh, it took me like, a minute to realize, oh my God, it doesn't snow here. So this never happens. This is like a, this is a really bad example. It's even funnier to me because Ashley's from California. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's like to when you want your beer to be even colder, what do you put in the ice? Salt. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you sprinkle salt on your sidewalk? Because the salt changes the balance of those two forces. So the two forces in a glass of water is entropy, which is just a fancy word for saying run around and be free. And binding energy, which is a force that wants to lock every molecule 2.8 angstroms, not 2.7, not 2.9. And it's the balance of those forces that determines whether you're liquid or solid. At high temperature, entropy wins. And then as you lower the temperature, boom, 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 entropy gets weaker and weaker and weaker, and binding energy gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And then boom, at 32, they cross. The system suddenly snaps. That tug of war between these two forces flips side and the water suddenly freezes. It has nothing to do with culture or yelling at the molecules. It's just the temperature. And that's the key to understand a totally different way to think about the behavior of groups. Once you understand those forces and that transition, you can begin to manage it. So you sprinkle salt. Why? Well, it makes the molecules less sticky. It makes the binding energy weaker. So they're less likely to bind, less likely to be rigid. So what does that do? It lowers the freezing point. So when you step on your sidewalk in the morning, you wet your shoe in a puddle instead of slip on a block of ice and end up in the hospital. So that once you understand that and work that out, and it's, because it's more than analogy, it's actually a series of equations, and you can write down what are those incentives in a group. Once you understand that and write that down, it gives you a whole new set of insights for the things that are the equivalent of a sprinkling a little bit of salt to design teams that are more likely to embrace wild new ideas. 
Now, in this analogy, which is a great analogy, mathematically founded, as you said, what are the forces in the groups? Are you talking about the internal biases of people, general human behavior, human psychology, and then what's the salt you're trying to add? Great question. Whenever you organize people into a group, you create two competing forces. If that group has a mission and a reward system tied to that mission, which is essentially any team or company or nonprofit organization or military or nation, whenever you have a mission and a reward system to that mission, you create two competing forces. Stake and outcome, perks of rank. Stake and outcome, perks of rank. For example, when you bring 10 people together, stake and outcome is huge. You're a tiny biotech company and developing a cancer drug. If that drug works, everyone's a hero and a millionaire. If it fails, everybody's unemployed and looking for a new job. That's a huge stake and outcome. Well, there's perks of rank. You know, you're the team captain or you're the team member, but that's almost irrelevant. It's like tiny, nothing compared to those giant stakes and outcome. Now, imagine the group gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now let's imagine it gets up to 100,000 people. I'm just going to make up a name at random here. Pfizer. 100,000 people. Now, what are your stakes and outcomes? Same you, same project, same cancer drug. Well, the revenue from a drug like that is actually, you know, it's a couple hundred million. On the other hand, Pfizer's annual sales, 50 billion. So your stake and outcome all of a sudden has gotten really small. Perks of rank, though, if there's a meeting and a committee and should we evaluate, should we do this new drug... Well, you know what? If you could actually make kind of smart aleck comments about the flaws in that early stage project, oh, you know, they didn't do this experiment, they didn't do that, I think the industry is headed here and they're not really being careful. And by total coincidence, that's exactly what your boss thinks. And she's sitting in the room and her boss thinks and she's sitting in the room and they're nodding along and say, well, that young fellow has a good head on it, so they know how to find the flaws. It's very thoughtful. And I think the industry is headed there too. What a total coincidence. And if you can keep doing that pretty well, guess what might happen? You might get promoted. And all of a sudden, you get a bump in pay of 30%. So we've just flipped. The force of perks of rank become huge, and stake and outcome becomes tiny. Somewhere in between those two, boom, there's a phase transition. And that helps us give a completely new way of thinking about why small teams unite around crazy ideas. They roll up their sleeve, they disregard rank, and just save them. Because the early stage ideas, whether there was a transistor or the statin drug or almost any new technology you can think of, failed many times before it succeeded. And so smaller teams unite around those ideas and save them because their stake and outcome is so huge, whereas larger teams focus more on rank, unless companies are careful, unless teams and groups do something to counterbalance that problem. I get too kind of, I get flooded with calls from all sorts of, you know, from you know, tech companies, film studio heads, you know, the, the major newspapers, um, insurance companies, investment banks, and it's all the same call. I was telling you in the, in the hallway, I, I was just, yesterday was the most bizarre day because I spent, I started the day on a nuclear submarine and I finished the day on a stage in Viacom with a selfie with Martha Stewart. So it was just like the most bizarre because, but all of these folks, whether it's the Navy and or uh, large media companies, have the same question. How do we stay young? How do we capture that spirit when we were small? And it usually comes in two flavors. Flavor one is I've gotten called by a whole bunch of sort of tech, very successful young tech company CEOs whose companies have grown from when they started it in college and four people 
to now 5,000 people and global. And they could feel it. They could feel the sort of slowing down, the ossific, and they're worried. And so they say, come, you know, let's talk about what can you do? What's the equivalent of sprinkling salt? How do I stay, you know, nurturing these crazy ideas as we get bigger? And the second flavor is, com- and, but they're on the up and they're just sort of thinking ahead. The second flavor is companies that have been big for a long, 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 long time and they realize they're starting to head down. Like a Microsoft. Microsoft is actually one of the, they were for a long time. And in the last five years, they've actually got it. Yeah. They figured out the secret sauce, which we can talk about if there's time. Oh, if we run out of time just before the secret sauce. Oh, well, too bad. <laughs> I better check out the book. Do you write about it in Loon Shots? Yeah. I thought so. Yeah. So the uh, Microsoft is one of the very interestingly turned it around in the last five years and really got it, really got the heart of what you need to do about this. Um, how do you keep that embracing wild new ideas thing alive even as you've already grown? And that's a very tricky thing. And that that's a huge problem. And it comes down in the physics language and science language. This is the problem. If you think of embracing wild new ideas as a phase of organization, just like being liquid is a phase of matter, and focusing on discipline and on time and on budget and on spec consistently to customers, which is also important. You need both as another phase of organization, just like being solid is another phase of matter. That's a huge problem. Why? Companies need to do both. They have to invent the wild, crazy new thing before their competitor does, and they discover it when it's a bullet headed to their head. But they also need to deliver on time, on budget, on spec consistently to their customers. Otherwise, they have no business. Now, that's important if you are a company, but it's in, it's a matter of life and death if you're the national, if you're a national security agency or the military, or if you're a hospital. I talk to both. I talk to military and I talk to hospitals. It's there. It's the stakes are really higher. You have these two phases. The reason it's so difficult, they're doing totally opposite jobs. In one case, the soldier's job is to minimize risk. Literally, is to minimize. If you're in a hospital, you have to deliver one gram at this time of day, not 10 grams. If you deliver 10 grams, patient's dead. If you're the military, you have to manufacture parachutes that open in the right way in the right time. Otherwise, the guy's dead, and you have to manufacture a million of them. You have to do that. It's a matter of life or death. But you also have to innovate astonishingly fast. Why? The last thing we want to do is have our soldiers, if it's the U.S. Army or the Air Force or the Navy, find themselves on a battlefield surrounded by machine learning robots and being slaughtered. We need to do that before enemy. Now, company stakes are big too, not so much a matter of life and death, it's a matter of profit and loss, but it's the same thing. You want to innovate faster or better than your competitors, otherwise they'll wipe out your business, but you have to maintain the course. So it comes down to how could you possibly do both at the same time? And this is why it's such a big problem. A system can never be in two phases at the same time. Water can't be liquid and solid. What does that even mean? How can a glass of water be liquid and solid? That makes no sense. By the way, I was giving this talk once, and someone in the back raised their hand and said, what about a Slurpee? (laughs) (laughs) Just for the record, a Slurpee is a liquid 
a disgusting sugary liquid in which are suspended particles of ice. And if you wait five minutes, it will be all disgusting sugary liquid. Okay, so that, what I'm talking about is how can you do both at the same time in, continuously, in equilibrium? And that's a big problem because, as we talked about, companies need to do both, but you can't have a system in both phases at the same time, with one exception. There is one exception to that rule, and that's kind of what I tell in the book and when I, when I do these talks, I tell how understanding that one exception helped the Allies win the Second World War, helped the U.S. lead the world in science and technology ever since, and gives us an entirely new way of thinking about what it means to be a good manager and leader. What is it? Oh, and I have to go. Oh, I have to go now. So, hey, it's been great talking to you guys. Really fun. Yeah. Hope to cross paths sometime soon. Appreciate it. Yeah. A nice studio you have here. Thanks for the water, and I'll uh, see you guys later. Hey, no All problem. Right? Is that good? That yeah. right? <laughs> we'll call it there. And we'll call it a day. That's a wrap. <laughs> Wait, before we the big reveal, did you have a? I saw you. I thought you had a question earlier. Uh, no, and then you answered it. It was it was basically just like what what are the drawbacks to the liquid phase? But you need to be on deadline. You need to be on budget. There you know you, gotta... you have to do both mm-hmm. yeah you have to do both and we're you know obviously we're we're talking about maybe some of bigger teams and companies but you know what I'm now I'm a writer so I'm solo when you're solo or running a small team or a very small group it actually applies as well but you uh, in a way that I will tell you all right so now we'll get to the answer the one exception to the rule that a system can never be in two phases at the same time setting aside the Slurpee story. The one exception to the rule is life at 32 Fahrenheit, right at the cusp of a phase transition, right at the brink of a phase transition. If you bring a bathtub to 32 Fahrenheit, what happens? It separates. You get blocks of ice and pools of liquid, blocks of ice and pools of liquid, and they coexist in equilibrium. But here's the key, and this is the key that makes all the difference. They don't just sit there statically. Neither one gets bigger or smaller. They just separate. It's completely dynamic. So molecules and liquids swim along and encounter the ice and boom, lock onto a face of ice and freeze. Molecule on the other side of the ice cube might start jiggling off and boom, go into the liquid and start swimming around. It's a completely continuous loop, back and forth, back and forth. In science and physics, that's called dynamic equilibrium. Phase separation and dynamic equilibrium. And that's the key. The few larger companies that have figured that out, Microsoft is one example, Google is another very good example. Actually, Lego has done a very good job of that. Talk about that a little later or some other time. The few companies who figured that out have understood those principles. And I'll explain what that means and sort of how I remember it, which is much simpler language. Since I don't have a very good verbal memory, I think of things in sort of in terms of pictures. So I think of the ice cube, the garden hoe, and the heart. Here's what I mean. Ice cube, garden hoe, and the heart. The ice cube is that idea that we were just talking about, that there are two phases. And you have your sort of artist working on creating something new, the creators, and that could be you know, biologists in a lab discovering new targets or proteins in a cell. It could be designers at a, a retail shop. It could be engineers. And they're working on something totally new that's far outside the box, not really in the box or near the box, but way away from the box. And then you have the soldiers whose job it is to get stuff done on time, on budget, on spec, consistently to customers. And those two groups don't understand each other and they don't like each other. The groups making the money rarely likes the group spending the money 
and vice versa. And the reason they don't understand and like each other is because they speak different languages. Here's what I mean by that. The English word risk, one word, four letters. You would think it would mean the same thing to everybody, but it doesn't. And to an artist, you want to take lots of risks. You want to try 10 things and nine of them won't work and one of them changes how people see the world. One of them is this great discovery. To a soldier, risk is a terrible thing. If you're going on to a high-risk battleground, that's a really bad problem. Imagine, if your job is to manufacture a plane, imagine saying to your general, here's my strategy, I'm going to put uh, 10 planes in the sky and let's just see which nine fall down. <laughs> that's not going to go over very well. That's not so good. No. Soldier job is to minimize risk at maximize quality. And the artist, the creators, is the exact inverse, 180 the opposite. You want to maximize risk, intelligent risk-taking, at kind of your minimum quality. You don't want to spend, put all your eggs in one basket. You want to spread them out. So they're doing exactly the opposite things. They speak exactly the opposite language. That same word means the totally different things. And it comes down to something I, I like to think of it as a beautiful baby, having worked with tons of scientists and entrepreneurs, but also you have to deal with regulators and, and marketers. Think of it as a beautiful baby problem. I have two young kids, so that's why I think of it in terms of babies. The, art, the creators come up with something new, whether it's, you know, I have this incredibly elegant code or algorithm that's just going to crack the field open, or I've come up with this amazing discovery in the lab that's going to help cure this disease or cure cancer. They see a beautiful baby. The soldier sees a shriveled up raisin covered in vomit and poop. And that is the fundamental problem. Beautiful baby, vomit and poop. Beautiful baby, vomit and poop. And that is the source of conflict. And that conflict is good. You want that tension inside. You want to nurture that tension. Why? If you don't have that tension, one of them is not doing their job. If the artists aren't like taking risk and passionate about their beautiful babies and new ideas, they're not doing a good job creating the new and pushing the boundary. And your competitor will do a better job and then come and kill you. You want your soldiers to be minimizing risk. You don't want to show up at a customer and say, knock on their door and say, all right, here's your toaster. I ordered a TV. What? You're not going to have any business after a while. So you want them to be doing these two different things, and you want that tension. You want one guy to be totally excited about their idea and the other to be like, well, how do we you know, de-risk that? When the iPad came out, it was a hit product. It was a great design. You had Johnny... I, one of the legendary product designers of all time. But you also had Tim Cook who figured out how to get the cost down to 600 bucks. You needed both to have a successful product. So the first thing is the ice cube, and that's to understand and create separate homes for these artists working on taking tons of risk and the soldiers working on reducing those risks. Number two is the garden hoe. And what I mean by that is there's this whole myth out there that the great leaders like uh, Moses that stands on the top of a mountain and raises his or her staff and anoints the chosen project, the holy loon shot, crazy idea that's going to be the future, part the waves. And that's just total garbage. That's If you look really at the course of history, at the great businesses, the ones that were sustainable, those leaders never led like that. They led much more, the really great leaders led much more like careful gardeners. They saw their job as managing the touch and the balance between the artists and soldiers, as bridging the divide, bringing out those early stage ideas, not too early, not too late, bringing them out into the field, and then even more important, collecting the feedback because they never work very well and these guys are not really motivated to go try it and take time out of their day. But even more important, 
they don't have any motivation to call and ask their customer, well, why don't you like it? Why is it not working? Can you tell me why it's not But they make that happen. They collect the crucial feedback and bring it back into the lab, and they create that dynamic equilibrium, cycling back and forth and back and forth. By doing that, by separating your artists and soldiers, creating separate homes for your artists and soldiers, by managing the transfer, not the technology. It's a mistake to go too much in the weeds in the one technology. The really great leaders and managers manage the transfer between these two things because that's the failure point of innovation. And the failure point of innovation is never in the supply of new ideas. If you put 10 people in the room with a stack of Post-its, you'll have a 1,000 ideas within a couple hours, and you're done. The, the failure point is never in the supply of new ideas. The failure point is in the transfer between these two groups, the transfer to the field, because you need both of them. And the final thing is the heart, and that may be the most important one, and that is love your artists and soldiers equally. And here's what I mean by that. Too often, managers or leaders favor one or the other. If they've grown up as this wild, crazy artist, they favor other wild, crazy artists and kind of poop all over the soldiers who are getting stuff done on time. And vice versa, if they grow up as soldiers and are disciplined and on time, on budget, they kind of poop all over those crazy artists who can't get in, you know, always scattered and all over the place and behind deadlines. And if managers or leaders, or even if you're solo, if you downplay one or the other, you will fail because you need both, and you need both in a high gear. Both have to be operating at an 8 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10 to succeed. If one of them is an 8 out of 10 and the other is a two out of 10, you will fail. You will be unbalanced and you will fail. So you need to love your artists and soldiers equally. And that's the secret to maintaining life at 32 Fahrenheit, maintaining that delicate balance between where you can coexist, groups encouraging wild new ideas and groups operating at high excellence. The liquid and the ice can coexist right at 32 Fahrenheit. And what that really does is that allows the out-there ideas to be tested and to to be tried out, like like the rocket or like really any innovation. A lot of the big innovations, like the iPhone, stuff like that. Like Steve Jobs almost shot down the Macintosh, right? Well, Steve Jobs almost shot down everything. So that that's actually a great example of, you know, Steve Jobs was held up as this fantastic leader, but people get that story exactly wrong. They keep drawing the exact wrong lessons from that story. So... Steve Jobs was an, a, a perfect example of what not to do in his first stint at Apple. He led like a Moses. He was like, I am the... When he finally got the Macintosh project, which was being developed by someone else internal, and Jobs had just done such a bad job on the front. The Apple II had been a success uh, for a year or two, and then Apple started getting passed by pretty quickly by all these other PC companies, the Commodore PET, the TRS-80 the uh, IBM PC, and they needed something new. And J- Jobs had tried to lead the Apple III and the Lisa project, and those didn't work. So they put him off. There was this other project they gave it to him in the side, a small number of people called the Macintosh Project. And so he took it over. And what did he do? He said, well, this is the awesome thing. We are artists, well, literally. We are artists, and all you t- guys are regular soldiers. You're regular Navy. Everyone working on the next Apple, Apple II, Apple III, just the franchise stuff, Boring, bozos, literally bozos. And that was, these were the guys, remember, bringing in 95% of the revenue of the company, right? The core tends to be bringing in the revenue and bringing in. So what happens when you do that? Well, the hostility he created 
between the groups working on the small group working on the Mac and the groups working on the next Apple, Apple II, Apple III, was so great. They took to wearing these little plastic buttons with a picture of Bozo the Clown and a red circle and a sash. We are not Bozos. Okay, the hostility was so bad that the street between their two buildings was called the DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone. Wow. And people were leaving. They were fleeing on both sides. And so when the Macintosh launched, it was a total flop. Great publicity, but the product was too expensive. It overheated. It was too slow. didn't have enough storage. And sales after the first month of publicity just completely tanked. Meanwhile, the franchise was tanking because a lot of good people had left, including Steve Wozniak, his first partner. So Apple started rapidly heading for bankruptcy. And Steve Jobs was demoted justifiably and left very soon thereafter. Now, fast forward 12 years later. He continued that behavior when he acquired Pixar from Lucasfilm, which is what ended up making him a billionaire and successful because he started running out of money after 10 years of you know doing the next computer company, which ended up failing again. And then... Uh, Pixar, he also tried to shut down the movie business of Pixar. He acquired Pixar because they had this awesome computer. And he was just trying to get back at Apple, the people who had kicked him out of Apple. He said, well, let me build the next computer. I'll make a better computer. Oh, Pixar, they have this image computer called the PIC, Pixar Image Computer. Let me buy that and you know make an even better, faster computer. Both of those failed. And he kind of tried to kill the movie business as well. Fast forward, he started learning some lessons from the movie business because the movie business like the drug discovery business, are two businesses where you have no choice. You have to nurture the new, which will fail a lot, and grow the core simultaneously. And you've learned the hard way. We've learned in the drug discovery business and the film business, you need your franchises, your next James Bond, your next Avenger, but you need the crazy things like, oh, here's somebody with a crazy idea of like giant turtles who have swords and eat pizza. Are you kidding me? That's like the dumbest idea I ever heard. That was a loon shot. It became... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, a multi-billion dollar franchise. James Bond was rejected too. Are you kidding me? A metrosexual British spy who saves the world? (laughs) Literally what they thought. Rejected for nine years by every film studio. Oh, you have a 32-year-old unknown actor who used to drive a milk truck as the lead guy. His name is Sean what? Sean Fonnery, Bonnery, whatever. This is idiotic. We're not even going to open this in major cities. So they opened it like in drive-in theater in Texas and Oklahoma. Boom. It became the most successful, longest-running film franchise in history. You've learned in those industries that you how to do this because you have to do this. So that's what happened to Jobs. He learned in the movie industry, oh, i, I got to nurture the new. i got to balance these two things. So when he came back to Apple 12 years later, 97, what did he do? First thing, he promoted a guy named Johnny Ive, who was the lead product designer for almost all Apple products over the last year, brilliant designer. Then he brought in a guy named Tim Cook, who was at his previous job in running operations at Compaq known as the Attila the Hunt of Inventory. Now, if there's a better name for a soldier inside a company, I don't know it. And he didn't lead like a Moses as this great designer. He led like a gardener. He managed the touch and balance between those two. He loved his artists and soldiers equally, and when he died, who took over? It wasn't the ultimate artist, Johnny Ive. It was the soldier, Tim Cook. And when he was on his deathbed in the last year of his life, he was being interviewed by one of his biographers, asked him, what was your greatest innovation? Jobs, you know, the biographer was expecting, well, maybe the iPod or the iPhone or something. And Jobs said, well, it wasn't any one of my products. It was in the organization that we designed. So that's the ice cube. 
the garden hoe, and the heart. And Jobs was the exact opposite of all of them. In the beginning, in his first stint, when he came back, that's what he was doing, like they are now doing at Google, like they're now doing at Microsoft, like uh, Bezos has been doing at Amazon, and a few companies are doing pretty well. Yeah. So I wanted to transfer this from the business world into personal life. Can you use the phase transitions in the family, with your friends? Any other ways to transfer this to in your in your day to day to help you manage that a little bit better? Well, okay, well yeah, I talk with phase transition with my wife about phase transitions. She pretty much just rolls her eyes and changes the subject. <laughs> it doesn't go. Over. You know, that's that's what one of the things. You know, to have a phase transition, you need to have many many interacting bodies or particles or agents. Like, you know, traffic on a highway goes through a phase transition, smooth flow to jam flow, but that's because there are many cars. So if it's just two of you, like a husband and a wife, there are a couple other dynamics that are at play. Not quite phase transition, but there's a couple of other... Uh, you know, one lesson I use at home is these are kind of more personal things that I got about pursuing crazy ideas. There's kind of... I've worked with so many scientists and entrepreneurs... And I've just taken some personal sort of individual things like how do they persist? These people I've worked with won Nobel Prizes or created phenomenal companies. And there, there's a couple of things that they do that are pretty awesome that I, I've kept in mind. And I, when we do talk about them in our family and we talk about them when we're pursuing some odd ideas. You know, one of them is I think of as LSC. Listen to the suck with curiosity. And here's what I mean by that. I mean... If you are an entrepreneur pursuing a, pa- a project that you're super passionate about, and you're really excited, and motivated, and then someone, you know, an investor rejects your pitch, or a customer says, "Ah," or you have some strategic partner, and they walk away, your reaction is to dismiss. Oh, these people are idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. They just don't get it. We're going to be huge. People love it. And what you want is reassurance. You know, so you turn to your friends or your mentors or your mother and say, like, I'm on the right track, right? Yes, honey, you're on the right track. Absolutely love your idea. Thumbs up, thumbs up. But that doesn't really help you. The really great entrepreneurs, especially when they're punched in the stomach really hard, this doesn't work or this is pushed down, they don't just acknowledge that. That's that sort of active listening stuff you get coached on, repeat what you just heard, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't really do much. That just, you know, if you say uh, Vester walks away, it's like, I understand you're walking away. Thank you very much. Move on. That doesn't actually get you anything. The really great entrepreneurs and scientists listen with curiosity and they keep asking why. Help me understand. And that's a very difficult conversation. It's kind of an art form. Why? Because the people who are not buying into your stuff don't want to give you that feedback. There's no upside to them. There's never any upside to giving that negative feedback. If they, you know, it could hurt a friendship, it could hurt relationships, it could hurt their relationship in the future with you, so they're just not going to give you that feedback. So the really great scientists and entrepreneurs have found a way to bypass that and say, hey, I know it's really, it, this is a big favor and it's taking time out of your day and it's not a lot of fun to do this, but would you help me understand, just, just give me two minutes, would you help me understand... What exactly made you, you know, not interested in this thing and interested in some other thing? And if you do that in just the right way, and if you take off your urge to dismiss and defend and punch them in the face and put on your Sherlock Holmes hat, just listen objectively like you're a detective to really tease it out. When you start pulling on that thread, 
at the end of one of those threads, there may be a gold nugget. Like that person was thinking, oh, well, there's this customer offering this other product that had this thing that I really wanted, this other feature. And you'd never heard of that. And P.S., it's really easy for you to put that feature on. In fact, you can do that feature much better than they can, and then you'd be... You wouldn't know that unless you did LSC, until you listened to the suck with curiosity. So I found when I'm pursuing my own stuff, like the biggest value comes from LSE, learn to learning to listen to the suck with curiosity. Another one that just sort of keeps me going is it can be very difficult. As you guys know, when you're starting something in the early days, no one believes that, you know, in a crowded field you can do anything, let's say a podcast or whatever. No one believes that you can, or writing a book that mixes physics, business, and history. Uh-huh. That's nah, never going to happen. It's very difficult to keep motivated. It's very difficult in face of a lot of rejection. So how do you do it? And so over the years, I keep in mind something I think of as, uh, since I don't remember very well, I need acronyms. I think of as SRT. Spirit, relationship, and time. And those are sort of like an internal uh, dashboard for me. How am I doing? So spirit is whenever you're sort of feeling down or it's not working or it doesn't seem to be getting traction or it's not, not doesn't seem to be paying off, come back to why you're doing what you're doing. Like what is your noble purpose? And if you step back, everybody has a noble purpose. You know, it might be if you're working in medicine, it's sort of obvious, you know, you're trying to save lives. If you're in national security, you're trying to protect the country. But other people may be trying to empower others. It may be trying to elevate the nation, maybe trying to elevate their listeners, may trying to spread joy. All of those are a noble purpose. So firstly, keep coming back to what's your noble purpose because that recharges your battery. The second is R is relationships. When you are pursuing something really difficult, you tend to often just shut everything out, get blinders on, and one of those first things to go is relationships. But those are the things that actually save you, that actually give you energy, that will help you when you are down. Stuff, having a nicer car, a nicer apartment, or eating at better restaurants or whatever, won't help you. Relationships will help you. So you want to make sure you're taking your time to nurture those relationships and keep them strong because the temptation is just to get rid of them when you're totally laser-focused on some new passionate project or something. So there's S, there's R, and then T is time. And that's because when you're anxious, when you're anxious about how your project is going and there's a ton of uncertainty, it's very tempting to fill your calendar with sort of mindless stuff of this gets done and that gets done, but none of it is really important. But it gives you a feeling of control. And that's kind of a fool's gold. You're actually wasting your time. You're filling your calendar just to reduce anxiety. It's sort of like mindless junk eating. Like you're feeling anxious, so let's just go into the cupboard and, you know, eat 17 bags of potato chips. You feel terrible afterwards, and you've got nothing done. So those are the things I keep in mind. Firstly is the LSC, listen to the suck with curiosity. And second is your own internal barometer, which is SRT. And if I had any final words, I could, for your listeners, there's one phrase that has really kept me going for many years. Shall I share it? Is this <laughs> yes. still, I still got time? Go you got, I'm on the edge of my seat. Was, <laughs> so this is something I got with from working with a guy named Judah Folkman, who would have won the Nobel Prize had he lived a little bit longer. But I worked with him for about seven years. 
And Judah was a brilliant surgeon and cancer researcher. And when he was a young guy, he came up with a crazy idea for how to treat cancer. Total moonshot. Crazy idea. And he said, you know, I keep operating on these cancer patients with cancer and lung cancer, whatever, and their tumors were surrounded by these blood vessels. And he did some experiments in the lab that convinced him, I think tumors are secreting some kind of mysterious substance that tricks the body into growing new blood vessels around them. And it's just like building a home. These tumors are like laying down pipes to bring in nutrients and oxygen and and take out waste. And he said, if we could block those pipes, we could stop that home. They won't be able to grow. And he did a bunch of experiments in the lab and he showed some, and he said, well, I think this is it. I think this is a totally new way to treat cancer. And he was in his early 30s, published a paper, Reaction, you are crazy, out of your mind. Everybody knows cancer is this you know, massive, you know, horrible disease of rapidly invading bad cells, and you need the only way is to just you know, shock and awe. You have to poison them, which is like flood your body with poison, that's chemotherapy, or just burn the hell out of them, that's radiation therapy. And that, at the time, was the only way of treating cancer. This idea of some mysterious substance in a tumor tricking the host tissue into growing new blood vessels and feeding these tumors. That's absurd. He was ridiculed for 32 years, not just in other labs, but also in his own institution. The board of trustees was the chief uh, surgeon, chief of surgery at Boston Children's Hospital. The board of trustees, there were so many complaints about his research being ridiculous and absurd. And uh, they convened a special meeting because it had gotten in the press, it had been a special meeting about the problem of Judah Folkman, and they concluded his research had little or no value, and they asked him to resign his position if he wanted to continue. He said it got so bad. He would he said, you know, when I would get up, when he would get up to give talks at conferences about angiogenesis, about blocking blood flow to tumors, he said everyone would get up and walk out of the room all at once. It's like everybody had to go to the bathroom all at once. He said he, he, I remember there was a postdoc that came to him one time and said, oh, you know, I'm getting rejected, my grants and proposals and so on. And Judah said, if you want to understand rejection, come to my office and I will show you pink slips, that's rejection slips from referees and, and journals and grant proposals with the word clown in them. Wow. Right. So Ju- this, and I asked, and fast forward, 32 years after he suggested this idea, June 1st, 2003, in a stage just down the road here in Chicago, the largest cancer meeting in the world, the convention center in Chicago. The scientists got up to report results from the largest clinical trial ever conducted in patients with advanced metastatic colon cancer, flipped a button, and showed that the patients who had received the drug based on Judah's ideas lived longer than anyone had ever lived in any clinical trial in history. Standing ovation, the field of cancer has been changed, and speakers said, oh, if only Dr. Folkman were alive to see this. Judah was sitting in the back row and just turned to his friend and smiled, and he loved telling that story. But it transformed the treatment of cancer, and even a lot of people who are experts in the field don't understand how much it transformed the treatment of cancer. This whole idea, I mean, there are now dozens of drugs and it worked in many different types of cancers in ways that a lot of people who even who are expert in the field don't appreciate how widespread it is. But 
just the idea that tumors send out these little signals into the body that trick the body into doing bad things for the body, that trend, and we could block those signals, that was the biggest revolution in cancer for the last 40 years. Now that, and that led to many, many, many drugs, much broader than the drug class that he developed, or he, he discovered. So I asked Judah, so the last, when the last couple of years of his life, how did you persist? When everybody was, you know, criticizing you and, and all these experts, all, you know, cancer experts everywhere, you know, there are all these PhDs with, you know, prestigious degrees. And he was an MD, so there was a little bit of a culture thing there. Oh, you're just an MD, you don't have a PhD, blah, blah, blah. How did you persist when all these experts said there's no way this could ever work and this guy's working on dirt and he's working on junk and inflammation and doesn't understand? All these experts told you were wrong. How did you persist? And he said to me in something that I keep in my mind all the time when people say similar stuff to me, there are no experts of the future. In that situation, that's not an organizational situation. He's, he's not an employee and he's not going into a meeting with a CEO trying to get a promotion. He's just doing work. And other people in this field who don't even necessarily they – they're not related to that institution. They just happen to be in that same field. They're dismissing this as a, as a crazy idea. That's very different than walking into a boardroom and saying, uh, here's the iPad. That's a bad idea. Or here's Microsoft. Let's get into cloud computing. Okay, well, that's a bad idea because there's those organizational pressures. This is separate. How do you – like what, what advice do you have or, or, or what guidelines or how can a person – look at an idea and not dismiss it immediately when it has no immediate consequence based on just the people in the room that they're with. Yeah, so there's, there's one is that the folks who are pursuing these crazy ideas. And there, you know, it, it was from Judah that I learned this LSC, the listen, because when people said, oh, I tried to reproduce your experiment in my lab and it failed. So obviously you're just a quack or whatever. Actually, that was, that was a major headline. It became a, he woke up one morning to read in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was, a national headline, big letters, famed cancer researchers work stumbles as uh, other labs failed to reproduce his results. Now, if you are accused of irreproducible results, that's a career-ending move, especially when it's a national headline. And so Judah didn't, most people's reaction are like, angry editorial, and this guy's a fraud. What did he do? He picked up the phone and called the guy and said, hey, let's get our postdocs on the phone. Can you just walk me through your steps? um, I just want to understand what you guys are doing. Totally took off the angry hat, even though he was a national, it was a national kind of career-ending emergency for him, and calls were flooding in and newspaper. Just walk me through. Um, I, I want to understand. And then he got the guy to just walk him through the steps. And they discovered when he had shipped the pro- Judah had shipped his protein over there, in the process of freezing it down, there was a certain leakage from the package. Just the freezing process to ship was the problem. And as soon as he went back and changed the way they shipped it, the, le- the results started working. He created an incredible supporter. And he learned something that was very useful about the property of his drug and his proteins in the same time. So that was an example of LSO. So if you want to, if you're on the person, the person who is um, promoting or championing a loon shot, 
LSC is important. He was the other example of where I got SRT from because he just kept coming like, people can, you know, he had this attitude, some days you're the dog and some days you're the fire hydrant. <laughs> some like days that. I'm the hero and some days people, and you know what, you just, you just keep going because he kept going, why am I doing this? I said, because kids are dying of cancer and what I might do might be important. And so, you know, some days I'm the dog, some days I'm the fire and just keep going. And relationships, he really cared about his patients and he really cared about the people he was working with and he cared about his family, which I got to know as well. And all the other stuff he just set aside. And so he just kept all of those things. So if you're championing a loon shot, that's the thing to keep in mind, those things. Now, if you're listening to one of these crazy ideas, you it's important to understand because people rarely understand the history of great breakthroughs. It's important to understand that almost every single major breakthrough that we've been part of gets a revisionist history. And I end up, for me, that was like so much of the fun in doing the research for Loon Shots, is that every story, whether it's the statins, the discovery of the most important you know, drug in cardiology in the last 30 years, the history of that that people tell each other is just so wrong. It died, that project got killed you know, many times, the three deaths of the loon shot, a really good idea dies several times, many times. So if there's, in terms of listeners, if someone's presenting an idea to you, you want to keep in mind the three deaths of the loon shot, that it's not a really good idea. It's probably not a really important idea unless it's been killed three times. And that was a lesson that one of Judah's friends and colleagues told me one day, and a person who had won the Nobel Prize for developing two very famous drug drugs and drug categories and he was in his 80s when I first met him and he would come over and advise us when we were you know a small team and of biologists and chemists and and a small team working on this stuff and I, I remember telling him one time over drinks late at night like oh man I'm so disappointed this like project that we were working on was in the lab it just showed this like it just didn't work and I had such high hopes for this thing and he leaned over to me he was Scottish and he said oh oh my boy it's not a good drug unless it's been killed three times. <laughs> I was like, whoa. And I've always kept that one in mind. So it's important if you're listening to one of these ideas, it's important to keep in mind it's probably not a good project unless it's been killed three times. Why? Well, think about it. If it's pretty easy and pretty obvious, probably a lot of people are doing it or someone else has already done it. The transistor, everybody, which is probably the most important invention of the 21st century, so that, like, that is just never going to happen. You know, that's just ridiculous. You know, we know how you make an electronic switch. It's with a little thing that burns off in a vacuum tube. And in fact, the first bunch of times they tried it, it didn't work at all, and they got something, and the first time they actually solved the problem and got something that looked like it, it was pretty lousy. It was unreliable and didn't look like it could be anything, and no one could figure out what to do with it because it was so unreliable and it didn't work very well and looked pretty lousy. The first application was a hearing aid. So almost always, all of these things that we take for granted, whether it was a personal computer, the transistor, or we talked about 3D animation, uh, whether it was almost every drug. Penicillin. Penicillin. I was say, we've talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the show. Yeah, yeah, penicillin was 20 years. It just sat on a shelf yeah. before it was turned into a real viable product. Almost radar. We, talk, uh, we talked about uh, 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 jet propulsion. That was dismissed for 20 years in a very dangerous way. Our enemy did not dismiss it, and we did. So your question was like, what do you tell these people who are rejecting? 
let's talk about the three deaths of the loon shot. It's probably not an important idea unless it was killed three times. Awesome. I'm glad we took that full circle back to the uh, the beginning. So thank you so much for joining us, Safi. Uh, we'll have to do a... Oh, man. I don't know what you do with that. But, There's so uh, much to talk about. Yeah, no, this is lot. great. Thank great. you so much.